one of the favorite dreams that someone ever shared with me who was somebody who was wrestling with exactly these kinds of things and they had a dream that they were sailing on this magical ship and they entered this canal where they said it felt like the ceiling was going to scrape their face off and they got to the other side and they entered in in this person's words an atrium of course atrium is also a chamber of the heart so this person was coming into contact with this sacred place in their own heart and that when they got there they didn't have the right shoes hello and welcome back to another new episode of the hidden world i'm your host whitney logan and this week i'm talking to a return guest the only person to make three appearances on this show so far, my friend and colleague, Adam Majors. Adam and I are talking about a psycho-spiritual phenomenon we refer to interchangeably as both the objective personality or the true self. In a world where we are often taught to construct or create an idealized self or a version of ourselves, that gains the approval of everyone around us. Adam and I wanted to illuminate an alternative path in the quest for personal satisfaction. Adam is a depth-oriented psychotherapist and the author of an upcoming book, Odysseus and the Oar. Adam is also a combat veteran and a gifted teacher. You are in very good hands today, listeners. Welcome to this week's episode of The Hidden World. Let's get into it. Okay. Um, you and I discussed sort of briefly talking about um, what you and I refer to as the objective personality or what people may understand if we say a kind of cute catchphrase like the true self. Yeah. Um, would you define that term objective personality as you understand it? So, yeah, it's a complicated question, but in a nutshell, the way that I like to think about the objective personality is who we would be if our personality had not been distorted by uh, psychological forces that are not inherently true to who we are. Uh, we have psychological defenses which protect us from harm. And that when these psychological defenses get activated, especially in a more primitive way, uh, it distorts our personalities. Say more about how psychological defenses distort reality and, and not necessarily a theoretical explanation, but maybe an example. Yes. So that people can really sink their teeth into this. Sure. I'll, I'll stick to myself as an example. Okay. So in the second year of my experience with Jungian analysis, I made this discovery that I had this terrible habit of people pleasing, especially with older men or authority figures where I wanted really desperately to win their approval. And the thing that uh, I came to see one day in a session with my analyst was that I was acting out of a false self. And so this is a term from D.W. Winnicott and that, that I had created a caretaker self, a false self in order to prevent future abandonments. So my dad left when I was four. And as a result of that experience, of course, anybody would want to protect themselves from having to go through something like that again. And so in general, wherever abandonment is involved, the defenses that tend to arise are introjection, which I'll define in a second, idealization of others, and devaluation of self. And so introjection in particular is extremely harmful because what we do is we internalize a bad object, or in other words, the person who has harmed us. And so with interjection, what happens is we end up 
um, taking this terrible experience like abandonment or abuse or neglect. And we assume that the reason that we've been hurt is because we were bad. So that's internalizing the, the bad objects. So the person who hurts us, we start to assume, well, we're actually the bad one. We got abandoned or we got hurt because we were bad. So then if we take idealization of others, devaluation of self, we can see how those kind of pair naturally with that defense that, that well, I am bad. Um, I'm not good enough. Um, this is the whole thing with devaluation of self is that that this is happening because I'm just not good enough or I'm bad or I'm unworthy of love. And then idealization of others happens correspondingly because whenever we look at everybody else, it's like, oh, geez, like they're, they're so great. They're so wonderful. And, and, and I'm not, you know, or I wish I was more like them. And this is all a distortion of reality that the way that we see things when these defenses have kind of co-opted our entire personality is, is distorted. We're not seeing reality as it real, really is. And we're not seeing ourselves as we really are. And when we're in this position, this is the really key thing. When we're in this position, we are acting out of a false self or a caretaker self that is designed to protect us from further incidents of harm. And it's not the true personality. It's not the objective personality. And so when I was in analysis and I made this discovery and I started seeing like, and, and the reason I discovered it is I was having all these really intense and unpleasant symptoms. I felt like I was being choked. I had this intense psychosomatic reaction whenever I was around older men. I'd be in a meeting and I'm talking with my boss and other people who I, I was actually the boss of, but I felt so threatened. I felt like I had to be a different person just to exist in the same room. And eventually I, I made this discovery thanks to a dream and um, we were talking about the dream in the course of the session. I started seeing like, oh my gosh, like I am an actor. I am not who I really am. I am this whole pattern of people pleasing is nothing more than me acting out of a false self to prevent being harmed. So when we talk about the objective personality, we're talking about who we would be if these kinds of distortions had not robbed us of who we really are. Mm. So these are the psychological forces that, that do this. And that's just one example. And there's countless examples. Yeah, I didn't have, I'm really amazed by that, like precise moment of awakening um, for you. Um, I didn't have that happen inside of therapy. I, I think I had it happen as a result of therapy. Um, but, um, something I'm actually just really getting clear about with myself and my own psychological defenses is that I tend to, um, conceal, even still mm -hmm. conceal part of who I am in most interactions. So this came up because I was in my own analysis last week. And um, I was talking about how I was worried about a particular way I was responding to my daughter. And then my analyst started trying to talk to me about that. And I wound up saying, yeah, I know, I know, I know. And he said, um, okay, if you know, why did you bring it up? And then I realized I wasn't actually worried about my interaction with my daughter. I, I do think that um, my attunement to her is, is more than good enough, but at least good enough. And I'm just so used to concealing my own wisdom <laughs> yeah. and sort of like playing dumb as a way to protect myself. And um, it has protected me 
but it has also limited me mm-hmm. a lot. And so I, I say all that because my, my really pivotal experience of discovering the difference or the distance between false self and true self or the constructed personality and the objective personality happened as a result of therapy, but I refuse to have the experience inside of therapy because I, I, it would have been too revealing. I wouldn't have been able to keep concealing um, the kind of power of epiphany, you know, um, or the power of transformation. Like I want it, I want to have those things alone. But uh, when I was 25, I was really identified with my constructed personality or false self. And I was suffering a lot because my constructed personality needed to be well-liked by everybody Mm -hmm. and successful in really conventional ways. And I, I don't, at the time, I don't think I was well-liked by the people I wanted to be well-liked by. And I was not at all successful in conventional ways. Um, I was having like a real quarter life crisis. (laughs) Um, And I um, was uncovering or kind of unearthing all of that material in therapy. And like a squirrel, you know, I would like unearth it and then store it away in my own, you know, mouth and then go alone somewhere to like really be with it. So this one night after therapy, I went outside in my backyard and I sat down by a tree and I kind of pulled all this material from therapy out and like tried to get a look at it. And then um, uh, I think I had a mystical experience, honestly, because I can't really, I don't really understand why or how what happened next happened. But um, I was looking up at the tree's branches and they were, it was winter. So they were bare and um, I I'd had an epiphany. Like I am, identif- I am out on the branches of myself totally identified with the weather patterns. Mm. So whatever is happening immediately is what I think I am. Mm -hmm. And so then I had this capacity to, to be curious about what it would feel like to turn around from, you know, the furthest tiniest limb of the flimsiest branch and kind of either look or crawl down that branch into like deeper, bigger, thicker branches, the trunk, the roots. Um, and, and thank God I think symbolically and can kind of roll with this stuff. Mm-hmm. So I did. And um, what, but I was very scared. I was afraid to turn around. I think I'd been identified with this um, um, outward facing constructed self because, because I was so afraid that something was irredeemably wrong with me at the center of things. And I think I picked this up from my experience of Christianity. I do, I do not think this is what Christianity teaches at all. Um, but I think this is what was mediated through the church as I knew it. So to my true, like, absolute astonishment, when I turned around figuratively and and looked deeply at myself, I did not find something irredeemably bad and broken. I found something really, really neutral, like, but, but not quite neutral. It was like a, like a, a loving awareness or an awareness that wanted to love, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I wound up laughing so hard, like a, um, like a full body pulsing, vibrating, my face hurt, laughing because, 
I, I mean, I it was almost, it was kind of ecstatic, but really genuinely in that moment, to me, so deeply funny, which sounds weird, like dark funny, that I had spent all this time running away from the an objective personality or true self that was really an actually a wonderful home to land in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the like hearing your story, I have like two reaction, two reactions, and and one is like it reminds me of so many of my clients, and yet uh, completely non-typical because I don't think most people or very many people at all probably have an awakening like that at such a young age. And I feel like most of my psychotherapy clients, especially for, for the most part, most of the people I've worked with have been between the ages of like 25 and 40. And I feel like the bulk of their work in therapy revolves around um, shedding the persona that they had to construct to get through the first part of life, through adolescence and then early adulthood. And then after that, it's like, well, that's not who I am. So who am I? Mm. Um, Like that seems to be the big question. And I I use the word persona, so I I should define that. Um, But persona literally means mask. Um, so that, that, um, Jung used the word, he kind of coined this term in, in psychology to say that we wear a mask to mediate our relationship with the world. And your experience that you just described fits pretty squarely, uh, within Jung's understanding of how the individuation process unfolds, uh, from that first quarter of life into the next stage where, and even beyond that, even into midlife, that this is a still a problem in midlife, but Jung saw the persona as being really necessary. Like we have to have a persona or persona, multiple personas or persona to mediate our relationship with the world and in different environments. And at the same time, there's something, um, that can be very dangerous if we get lost in the persona, that if we start to identify with the persona, if we start to identify with the mask that we wear for the world, we lose ourselves because ultimately the persona is like a compromise between who we really are and what the world needs us to be. And um, like in, in my work as a veteran, Um, And then as a therapist who's done a lot of work with veterans and in my writing, this has been kind of a key topic because so many veterans or first responders um, and and not even just those groups, but I feel like this is a problem with men in our society as a whole, that they get wrapped in this tough guy, John Wayne persona, and they start to think they've all fallen in love with this idea that that's what a man is. Mm-hmm. That a man is the tough guy, John Wayne, the hard ass with the pickup truck and the big muscles and whatever. And they've all got wrapped up in this persona, lost with no idea who they really are. And they're deeply unhappy and angry and resentful. Mm-hmm. And all of these problems that they lash out at the world with really start somewhere inside themselves with the this profound unhappiness of having no idea who they really actually are and that this persona is at the same time this this compensation mm-hmm. there's this deep inner weakness and this this fragility that comes with not knowing who you are mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so then you have to be something else that's worth being mm-hmm. and and that this is in the end it's a big betrayal you know, it's betrayal to, to who we really are when we get caught up in the, the warrior persona, if you're a veteran or first responder or, you know, with whatever persona. Um, your internet persona. Yeah, bingo. You and I actually decided to talk about the objective personality or the true self sort of in response to 
what you and I have assessed as really um, like dangerous encouragement from the social media paradigm or algorithm to become identified with your persona. You know, there's, and that the, that it's a a psychosocial crisis of our time to believe you are your brand is going to guarantee an incredible amount of suffering. Even if you never let anyone know, you know, um, yep. you are in prison when you are identified with your persona. Yeah, it's astonishing to me to see all the people in the wellness space and therapists in particular, even even Jungian accounts, you know, that this is something Jungians are supposed to have their, their you know, they're supposed to keep their fingers on the pulse of this. And, but, but yeah, to see accounts where people are entirely appear to be, appear to be lost in this professional persona. And, you know, my own account, it's like, I've kept it private until extremely recently, but, um, but yeah, I, I find myself trying to just be, you know, post the, the real stuff of life, um, rather than like having every single photo be like, a professional headshot or some quote with, you know, I see this all the time, people creating quotes that they think are really clever and then making sure that they put their name on it, hoping that somebody's actually going to share this shit and, and no one ever does or will. Or if they do, it's, it's usually, you know, just like as like a nod to a friend or whatever. But yeah, it's like everybody in this world, in this age, that this is the spirit of our time in this place, the zeitgeist, everybody is disenchanted with realities of capitalism that that nobody wants to go work at a bank or uh to work for a financial institution or have a boring nine to five and so people go out and they try to create a way for them to be their own bosses and this comes from like having to have a marketing strategy and to have a brand and before you know it, you know, people are, you know, um, you know, their, their whole entire life revolves around this idea that I am fill in the blank. And it's, I am my Instagram page. I am my, my Patreon. I don't know. My entire value is based off of how many followers I have relative to everybody else. And I see people, I follow you know, uh, people who I really admire, you know, professors from Pacifica Graduate Institute, or um, even like very famous depth psychologists who have like no followers, yeah, like less than 500 followers, and they're just keeping it real. Yeah, you know, it's just a picture of their cat, no cheesy quote, you know, they're, they're just keeping it real. And I have such a profound respect for that. And that's what I want to see. And that's what I tend to engage with. You know, like, that's what I want, you know, and it reminds me of that quote, um, God, I wish I'd remember who'd said it. Um, I don't think it's Yeats, but I need to look this up that, to, that we're here to suck the marrow out of the bones of life, like to get something real and fatty and tasty and mm-hmm. have something good. And, and it seems like what most people really want is plastic, mm. like splashy, um, you know, people's soul food these days seems to lack substance. And I think a lot of this, again, is traced back to being disconnected from the objective personality that, that when you're lost in this idea, like craving that there's something else, there's this other psychological force, and whether it's psychological defenses that have you craving fame, because you feel like you have no inherent value, or whether it be some complex whatever it is that there's something else that's driving you, you know, unconsciously with no awareness that something has you in its grips and it's pulling you into this pit of fucking plastic that you can just drown in, you know? Yes. But and it's seductive. So yeah, it's seductive. It's, um, and I think it's probably more seductive this year than than most other years, or it could be, 
um, because we have all been really um, limited in what we can interact with and who we can interact with. Yeah. And so there's a lot more time for living as if your life was online yeah. and your relationships were online. Um, I, and, and I say it's seductive because I want to really extend us all compassion for, for, you know, falling into this trap occasionally or often yeah. or always. Um, you know, when I, um, when I started my own public uh, Instagram account, I kept getting emails from like branding and marketing companies. And they would say to me, like, in order to get more followers, you know, we have a team of people that can't, if you pay us, like, I don't even remember a hundred dollars a month um, and give us like your password, we can, what we'll do is we'll go follow a bunch of accounts like yours or that follow accounts like yours. And then they'll, you know, and like some of their posts and then they'll follow you back. And then like three days later, we unfollow them. I was like, holy shit. No, whoever is here, I really want them to be here for their own reasons. And then if, if they participate in whatever it is I'm creating in a way that seems healthy and thoughtful and uh, kind, then I typically want to then know them back and see what they're doing. And this feels like community. Yeah. It feels like if it's social media, like I'm interested in the social part. Yeah. Um, but it, but still my brain is like every other human brain and dopamine gets released when I get positive feedback. And so again, like I want to be compassionate about how seductive this is because yeah. I often have to say like, okay, that feels good. It's yeah. not, it's not sucking the life out of the, whatever that quote was, what is it? Sucking. Yeah, sucking. Sucking the marrow, marrow out of the bones of life. Yeah. yeah. Sucking, it's not sucking the marrow out of the bones of life at all. That's that's happening offline. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, this makes me think of this this reality. And you know, this this is something that I think anyone can experience. It's not a certain character structure or personality to type, I don't think that tends to experience it anymore. Um, you know, whether you're, you have like narcissistic leanings or depressive leanings, that, that this potential is there. But when we are acting out of uh, the needs of ultimately, like deep down out of the needs of the objective personality, the true self, like that deep in the core of who we are, that this part of us is starving for recognition. Mm. And it's kind of like when um, you're looking for comfort, you'll look for it anywhere, even in really distorted and unhealthy ways. Like using meth can be a way of trying to get a bit of comfort or to, you know, but um you know, so there's a lot of ways we can do that. Some good, some not so good. But when we act out of these, these needs, these deep and authentic and important essential needs, that, that sometimes we end up getting approval for things that really have nothing to do with the underlying essential needs like to really be seen for who we really are that's that's what i think we long for most and mm -hmm. and when we are recognized or when we are praised for being something we're not on a deep level we know that it's all a sham you know maybe not consciously maybe consciously we're like oh great i posted a picture of me 
in a leprechaun outfit and I got 10,000 likes, like how wonderful. You know, so, so now this, this, this false thing, and this is not rational thought I'm speaking like as if I'm like an unconscious clown or something, right? Like, oh, how wonderful. I got 10,000 likes for being scantily clad or for dressing like, like a leprechaun or for sharing this thing. And so now that that's reinforced, I'm going to do it again. Yeah. And so it like almost becomes this addiction. Like, let me keep doing the thing mm-hmm. that reinforces this false thing. And meanwhile, deep down the essential, essential thing is still crying out. Like I need to be seen. And all I'm getting is this false thing, but it's like, no matter how much you pour into this false thing, it's never going to fulfill the underlying cravings of the true self. And that, you know, it's like, you know, uh, I think that any therapist when they're going through training, they, they try to help you be mindful of the fact that, um, that like, it doesn't do any good to just shower people and like approval, like a therapist's job is not just be like, um, unrelentingly, uh, you know, like, um, gratuitous with compliments and, you know, just to, to shower somebody and positive affirmations, like that is not going to do anything because if the person is coming in there, just trying to please you out of this false self, and that's what you're doing, you're not helping them at all. You're not doing anything for them at all. And, um, that there's like a real danger in being so unconscious about these things. Yeah. Yes. You and I have, um, I, I would say that you and I are, um, fairly devoted students of Jung, um, at this point. And so that's the frame of reference, um, that I assume when, when we're talking. Um, but one of the things that I like the most about learning from and working with Jungians is that they are able to articulate this so well, like therapy isn't supposed to make you feel better. The goal isn't to walk out of here feeling better every time we meet. It's the goal is to become more conscious and consciousness can hurt. Mm-hmm. And yet when you can become conscious, more conscious in the presence of someone else who continues to offer their deep caring, this is different than approval. Then you can integrate all the parts of your objective personality, including the stuff that's really pretty shitty. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I felt like the, the gift of, of um, my own first analysis was that I, I trusted my analyst enough over time she had earned my trust to really not just talk about, but act out some of my worst impulses in the therapy relationship. Almost the way you can expect to interact with a child, you know, where they're going to have tantrums and they're going to, I mean, my, my daughter constantly, you know, is, thinks I'm the best one minute and then thinks I'm the worst one minute. And um, like, if I give her a boundary, she likes to say things like, you'll pay for this, you know? And um, uh, so that like kind of um, instinctual aggression and, um, and the things, the things in the totality of the self that usually get shamed, you know, when we're growing up by the world around us in a variety of different ways to, to sit in a therapeutic encounter 
where instead of the instead of those things being shamed, someone's curious about them. Mm-hmm. Allows you to then hold them yourself curiously. Yeah. And so we you can stop rejecting parts of yourself for fear of being abandoned, shamed, punished, abused, etc. And then to to start moving through the world in a way where you're not still compulsively rejecting yourself. And and therefore I think that allows you to be attracted to other people who don't want that from you. Yeah. I think that that's so valuable. And I was thinking about my relationship with my own analyst and and with myself. Mm. Um, hearing you say that because, you know, I've been working with my analyst every week at least, you know, for the last five and a half years. The first year, a lot of it was like two times a week. So a lot of analysis, right? And I that's why I laugh when I hear people talk about like 12 and 16 week therapies. It's like, yeah, okay. Um, because I've been with my analysts for over five and a half years and I've worked very hard at this. And I know that to this day, there are things I do not want to talk to him about. You know, there are things that I'm like deeply ashamed of or whatever. And in reality, like, and so I hold that and I notice it, I'll write about it. Um, I think about like, oh, how interesting that I don't want to talk to my analyst about this. And then to know, like, he's not going to give a shit. He's going to, he's going to be so glad we're talking about this. And so recognizing that there's something within me, you know, like the uh, caretaker self, you know, if you want to use Winnicott's term, if we want to come to young, we could say that this is, um, you know, something about, uh, you know, like a, a moralistic ego attitude or a you could say that it's an element of shadow even like there's a lot of different ways you could define it depending on what the thing is but importantly that there's something within me that that the thing the thing within me that wants to not talk about this thing with my analyst is the bigger problem Mm -hmm. sometimes than the thing that you don't want to talk about Mm-hmm. You know, whether it be memories from the war or something, something that you did in war or something that you've been thinking about that, you know, what it could be anything. But the important thing is, is that there, there, this is such complex work. It's, it's hard to kind of hold all these parts at once. And most importantly, until you have like a really one, like the awareness, the, the kind of consciousness that gets curious about what is at work within me. Mm-hmm. And then, and then two, the kind of relationship where you feel safe enough to really say whatever. Um, and also I think not just that, cause it's like, without a doubt, I feel safe with my analyst, but it's those other parts of myself that are like the real true barrier at this mm-hmm. point, you know what I mean? And all of us have these things to some degree, sometimes without the awareness that there's anything there that's a problem at all you know that it takes years sometimes to get familiar enough to see to see these things at work and it might be helpful too to turn toward like well what what do we do about it like how do we how do we um like what you know i'm i and i think about especially like within young psychology what do we do if we have some fear that we're living out of a false self or some awareness that we are living out of a false self but we don't want to anymore mm. Actually, I, I have a client who, this is the material she's bringing to me right now, which is, and it's, it's very, very, very intense um, grief. The, the emotion that goes along with this um, coming to consciousness about having lived out of a false self and not knowing who the true self is that liminal space or, or kind of in between space um, is very painful. It's very grievous. And, um, you know, sometimes um, we will have 
conversation about like how to get there, you know? And it's it's a tricky thing to to answer because it's an individual path. It's an it's an individual homecoming. It's an individual journey through unique complexes and defenses. Um, and it requires a lot of patience and courage. And, you know, the difficult emotions are part of, part of that journey inward. That, that grief is really not something you can skip over. Um, and I think a lot about do you know the poet mystic John O'Donohue? I know the name, but I don't know any any of the work. Um, he's, uh, I believe, Irish, maybe Scottish, but I think Irish. Um, and he, um, I, I once heard him in an interview say that the soul is like a wild animal. Hmm. And so if you want to have an encounter with it, you can't go like crashing through the brush and shouting for it to present itself. You have to walk humbly, find a, a space, you know, in the woods in which you can sit down and start to breathe in rhythm with the natural environment there mm -hmm. and slowly, patiently wait for glimpses yeah. of the animal. I love that. I love that. It reminds me of Hillman's work, you know, that Hillman, James Hillman, Jungian analyst, depth psychologist, maybe one of the greatest minds since, you know, Jung or even Plato and Socrates. I mean, unbelievable uh, in terms of his insights uh, philosophically and psychologically, but Hillman was very critical of the Western heroic ego that, that this is a tremendous bias of ours and that especially in today's world where we're so obsessed with perfection of everything and self-improvement and, and development that, that until you have the right attitude, until you can sit humbly and wait for an experience that it's really kind of pointless, that, that this is not something that you can't, you can't, um, you cannot go through the the process of individuation as if it were a trek up Mount Everest. Like this is not something you accomplish by being a hero that you have to kind of surrender a little bit that the religious motifs really um, have some real value here, learning yeah. to surrender. I think you and I have talked about this a lot um, in other conversations, but, and I've mentioned it actually on this podcast before too, but I, I think for me, the, the myth and the story that guides my understanding the most is that of Anana, the Sumerian goddess, mm -hmm. who um, left the heavenly realms mm -hmm. consciously in order to go have an encounter with her sister, who was the queen of the underworld. That story to me is the story of individuation. It's not climbing Mount Everest and sticking your flagpole on the top. It's going down into the terrifying depths of yourself mm -hmm. and emerging as a whole self. Yeah which now has the power to um, both honor death and life mm -hmm. and participate in the universal truth of life, death and rebirth inside yourself and then in the world around you. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me um, of the necessity of suffering into reality, mm -hmm. that story. And in Donald Calshed's work, he uses that phrase. And it's, it's a phrase that's seen elsewhere in the works of like other depth psychologists or even beyond depth psychology. But 
um, Cal Shedd makes the point in his book, Tra uh, Trauma and the Soul, um, and which that book is really about what we're talking about here. It's, he, he, he talks about his research with the dreams of trauma survivors. And ultimately what we see as people are recovering or, or transforming through their trauma is usually a confrontation with this intense pain or with this, this intense suffering that, that comes with facing your trauma, uh, with, with facing the pain that the defenses are trying to guard us against, you know, that ultimately when trauma occurs, these defenses pop up to protect us. But the trouble is, is defenses tend to get stuck in the on position and they distort reality long after the painful thing has happened. And then the work of therapy or analysis, what can happen is that as we face the pain that the defenses guard against, as we suffer into reality, as we suffer into the painful reality of what happened, those defenses can fall away and transform into healthier functioning. Because once you face the pain that they were there to guard against, they really aren't needed in the same way that they were before. And so that this is suffering into reality. And with that, uh, what we see in the, the dreams of trauma survivors, and you know, this goes back long before Cal said, you know, that this is an inherent part of the individuation process. I mean, Jung noted it, that like at a critical moment in the individuation process, there's often a dream of the birth of a divine child or a savior child, that there's this emergence of something completely uh, unique and beautiful, uh, innocent, that like this is an innocent core of the self, that you could say that the divine child is an image of the soul itself or the true self, depending on how you want to look at it. And that when we're able to free ourselves from these tyrannical forces that distort the personality, that keep that true self out of being, that, that that's when this soul child can emerge into existence. That like who we're really meant to be can come to life. That this, this is the savior child, so to speak, who brings us new life and frees the kingdom from this, you know, uh, state of peril or unrest, mm -hmm. you know, that things are restored after this. And we see these mythological and religious imagery in the dreams of trauma survivors during the individuation process. Now, so I should say, not just trauma survivors, that's where Cal Shedd focuses his work, but we see it in the individu individuation process in general. And, and I'll just say one more thing here that one of the favorite dreams that someone ever shared with me, who was somebody who was wrestling with exactly these kinds of things. And they had a dream that they were sailing on this magical ship and they entered this canal where they said it felt like the ceiling was gonna scrape their face off. And they got to the other side and they entered, in, in this person's words, an atrium. And he meant it, an atrium in the, the architectural sense, but of course, atrium is also a chamber of the heart. So this person was coming into contact with this sacred place in their own heart. And that when they got there, they didn't have the right shoes. Hmm. And this is kind of a curious thing about dreams, but it was saying that this person was undergoing this, this, this sacred passage into the underworld, into some sacred part of their own soul, and yet um, was still missing something to navigate this sacred place, you know, but that I think that working with dreams is such a beautiful way and important way of being able to, to see where we need to go next or to get a sense of where we are, or what we're going through, you know, put it in a, a mythological framework, you know? Mm. Yes. When you were talking about the divine child, it um, made me remember that, um, you know, after I left the church, um, I, I had had really significant um, mystical experiences as a part of uh, Christianity. So I, I maintained a relationship with the unknowable, unnameable, ineffable, divine 
open mouth, I don't have a word, right? Um, but I was having a hard time relating to um, the stories of the Bible non-literally. I had been taught by, not um, by like academics, but I had been taught by the um, institutional church that the stories of the Bible were literal or they were nothing, you know? Mm. And, um, but these stories had shaped so much of my mythos. The, they're my stories. They're my cultural and childhood stories. And um, I couldn't walk away from them, even if I wanted to. Um, and I didn't want to, destroy them or demonize them. I didn't know what to do. So I, I just let left them. I let them lie. Like I put them on a shelf and did a lot of other things and paid attention to a lot of other religious traditions for a while. Um, and it wasn't until I was in Jungian training and I was learning how to work with dreams and fairy tales and other myths that I went back um, in my own memory. I, I had spent most of my life reading the Bible pretty, um, with a lot of devotion. And so, you know, these stories are a, a big part of my memory bank, the same way that, you know, childhood songs are. And so I went back and I was starting to have this brand new relationship with the stories and they started to mean more to me than they ever did because I was, I was able to see like, oh my goodness. So the divine child in this tradition, he too also has an experience like Anana. Yes. In actually three days. Yeah. The, there's this. And so then the story started to feel universally true. And it had more of an invitation for me than it ever had before. Like when it didn't have, when it was no longer literal or a lie. Right. But instead it was something so true. It could only be told through story. And I, and I thought in particular a lot about how Jesus's death was sort of like, and then resurrection. It, it speaks a lot to the process of projection and taking back projection where everyone needed him to be king and God, you know, and, and then they killed him for being king and God. And, and then, you know, he, he resurrects to sort of demonstrate that indeed he is God. And then he goes away in order to force these people to fully take that projection of God back into themselves. Hmm. Saying, it's good that I go away because what, when I go away, finally, you will have to meet the Holy Spirit on the inside. Finally, you will have like a counselor, an advocate, um, a non-mediated relationship with the divine on the inside. And the only way you would possibly be able to do this is if I, God, tell you that's how it is. Mm. It's wonderful. Yeah. It's really wonderful. And that makes me think I, I should say to anybody listening who thinks that we are crazy. <laughs> we, we are. And, uh, and, but us Jungian folks and Jungians in general, Jung himself, that, that, uh, uh, Freud accused Jung of trying to become a mystic and really <laughs> that's where they parted ways. He wanted nothing to do with Jung and trying to become a prophet or something. And he, he warned Jung he'd be accused of being a mystic and so on and so forth. So forth. And, and Jungians are often um, criticized for having uh what are seen as like a religious bias or a, a mystical bias within the psychology. And, and 
to anyone who's seeing a bit of that in our conversation right now, I'd say that this is the inherent reality of the psyche, that these archetypal images that recur are symbolic. They're inherently psychological, that this is what the psyche does. That, And Jung says that, uh, you know, when he's discussing archetypes, that when in a particular psychological situation that the psyche tends to express itself with these images that repeat themselves, that, that, that this is what an archetype is. And it's kind of like the way that matter arranges itself in a particular uh, way under certain circumstances, mm. you know, or, it, you know, if we, we think about, um, you know, if you just get on Google and you look up like the vibrating plates with sand and the images that come up that, and I, I believe that they're called Chaldney figures, um, I think is the term, if I'm saying that right, but that this was discovered back in the 1700s where somebody had taken like a, a plate, a metal plate, and they took a bow, like a violin bow, and they ran it across this. They noticed that when, um, with a certain vibration or a certain tone, that the sand on this plate would create a certain image. Mm. And so if you get on YouTube and you look up Chaldney figures, if I'm saying that right, it's spelled C-H-A-L-D-N-I, I think. Um, I could be getting that wrong, but it'll still get you there. And when they play certain tones or frequencies or sounds through these plates, that it'll create these beautiful patterns. And so under a certain condition and the condition being the tone, it creates a certain pattern and it's beautiful to watch. And this is what the psyche does, that psyche and matter are two poles of the same thing. And that under certain circumstances, given uh, uh, certain conditions, the psyche expresses itself in this way. And that when we are coming to see who we really are, when we are having this divine encounter with something inside of us that is true, uh, that, that we see this image of the divine child, that this, this is archetypal. And, and also just for context for anybody wondering, so Jung did use the word true self. And, and as one example, when he's discussing uh, Ulysses, so he, he wrote a whole thing about James Joyce's Ulysses, the modern kind of retelling of the Odyssey. He says, Ulysses, the sorely tired wanderer, toils ever towards his island home, back to his true self, beating his way through the turmoil. I'm skipping a bit. And free at last from the fool's world of illusions, mm -hmm. looks from afar impassively. And it takes me back to that story you told of sitting under the tree. Mm -hmm. Be free at last from the fool's world of illusions that like, Mm -hmm. almost like Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree to, to have this enlightened experience of finding who we really are uh, in relationship to the self. Yes. That there's something on the other side of this helping us discover who we are. Yes. And I should say, and I don't know why I didn't, um, but like Ulysses, um, getting a glimpse of the true self wasn't or knowing where you're where you want to land make contact rest your head again you know doesn't get you it's that's great that's a you know like a lighthouse or something in the distance or a inner compass that mm -hmm. um i um thank god whatever god is for but the 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 journey into feeling more and more grounded or stabilized in that place does require you know encountering the cyclops and getting seduced by calypso and yeah. nearly drowning and losing a bunch of men and um you know having some encounter with poison or war or you know it's, yeah. it's, um, it's not all butterflies and rainbows. No, 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 no. And what I wish people knew though, is, is that 
finding the right environment to do that work is critical. Yeah. And then, and then that on the other side of everything we're afraid of, you know, on the other side of the pain we think might destroy us is rebirth, you know, is, yeah. it's, it's this cycle, the life, death, and rebirth cycle. It's the story of Inanna. It's the story of Jesus. Um, it's the story of Ulysses. That, and so, of course, we will be afraid. Uh, that's inevitable. Jesus was afraid. Inanna was afraid. Ulysses was afraid. Um, and yet there's hope. Yeah, the greatest stories ever told, the ones that have endured all these thousands of years have endured for a reason and that it's a journey worth taking um, even though it's, it is terribly painful mm -hmm. and um, not one that's ever done once and for all. So um, I remember uh, when I was at Pacifica early on, you know, like first year, really just getting into this stuff, I had been having all these dreams of trying to get home and I was trying to get home from war. And then I would be like in, in Nazi Germany and then I was in Russia and then I was somewhere in Europe and I was trying to get home. And the, and the dream has always frustrated my attempt to get home. And uh, I asked my professor and um, I said, like at what point, like what has to happen, you know, so that I can, I can get home. And uh, he said, oh, you know, like this is the journey of a lifetime. Like you're, you'll be having these dreams, you know, probably for the rest of your life and that that's something to enjoy, you know? And I was like, fuck, you know, <laughs> yeah. not what I really wanted to hear, but yeah, that this is not something that's done once and for all. Um, I did eventually have a dream where I was coming home, but yeah, it's like, it's, it's an ongoing process. And I tell this to a lot of people, like your complexes never go away. Yeah. Your defenses never go away. What can happen is that they get constellated with less frequency, less intensity, um, and less unconsciousness. Yeah. Yeah, that, that uh, I, I can't remember who it was now, but there's some analyst who's like an old man and he said, I feel like I'm unconscious most of the time. And I think that we're probably all unconscious most of the time, but this is the, I think this is the real beauty of Young's work and uh, being a student of Young and, um, and being a patient in analysis is that then we have the opportunity to watch our dreams tonight and to see, oh, well, when I was doing that podcast with Whitney, how did the unconscious see it from its perspective? Mm. Was I in a complex when I was doing that? Mm. Uh, was there something else at work? Was I in touch with something, you know, that uh, may have been otherworldly? You know, uh, might we have been watching, um, sea creatures swimming under the surface or might it have been something different you know so it's like we get to see from the perspective of the unconscious the psychic reality and that that's always a good reminder of of whether there's something pathological or uh less than healthy at work or whether uh, there's something really beautiful happening and whether we're on the right track and that this is, this is a life's work. It's not something accomplished once and for all. We don't discover from the true self or become conscious or enlightened. And then suddenly we're cured and saved. And, uh, you know, everything is, is uh, perfect from there on out that, that we have to kind of stay on our toes and be curious about what horse we're riding on now and what thing might be uh, throwing us, you know, out of balance or, or out of touch with who we really are. Yeah. Is that the thing you wish everybody knew? 
that the work continues? Yeah, it's what, yeah, it's definitely important. Yeah. Like I am not a finished pro project far from it, like five years into analysis. I, I am constantly reminded, you know, um, constantly reminded that I have a lot more work to do. Um, I, I still feel like an infant, especially in the realm of Jungian psychology that, and, and that there could be a complex, even in me saying that. Yes. Yes. I have to be curious about that, 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 you know, um, my own analyst would tell me like, Adam, are you kidding me? Like you've written these two wonderful books. Like you don't give yourself enough credit. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, Oh no, I really, I do. I feel like an infant. I feel like a toddler in this work. And, um, and I, for me, I feel like that's a good attitude to have, like, Hey, I have a lot to learn here. And yet at the same time that eh, maybe that could be my depressive character structure at play. And I don't know, but what I can do is I can try to stay humble, try to keep my head appropriately sized and to just be curious about what's, you know, what's going on under the surface, you know, and whether or not I'm, I'm attuning to the self, you know, mm -hmm. um, to the divine, to the source, however you want to say it. Yeah, that's beautiful. On that note, I, I want to tell you, I'm very grateful to you, especially grateful that you live in Kansas City because many times I think, I think Adam is the only person I know in this town that I can have these conversations with. Likewise. Thank you, thank you to Adam for holding our hands through another mysterious and meaningful aspect of the human condition. The Hidden World is produced by David Gomez. Our theme song is written by David Gomez, and I'm your host, Whitney Logan. Be good to yourselves and each other.